0: From KQED From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. As the United States grapples with civil unrest, many people are questioning how we arrived in this situation and how the nation can change for the better. In his new book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise, New York Times economics reporter Eduardo Porter presents a comprehensive examination of how discrimination based on race has hurt not just members of marginalized groups, but the nation as a whole. Porter joins us to discuss his new book and how it relates to the current debate over dismantling systemic racism. Join us after this. Welcome to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt created the New Deal in the 1940s, the program was designed to lift millions out of poverty. The policy worked well if you were white, argues New York Times economics reporter Eduardo Porter in his new book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise is a book that demonstrates how government policies that spurred economic advancement were popular as long as they helped white people. For decades, racism-fueled policies undermine the nation's education systems, health care programs, and assistance for the poor, he writes, and instead boosted resources to incarcerate people. Porter, who has previously served as economics columnist and editorial writer for The New York Times, joins us this hour to discuss his new book and how it relates to the current debate over dismantling systemic racism. And welcome, Eduardo Porter.
1: Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Glad to have you. And uh, congratulations on the book, first of all. It's really impressively well-researched. And uh, let's begin with really one of the underlying premises that gets at the heart of the heart of the book. Racism, you say, defines who we are. Bigotry and xenophobia define us.
1: Indeed, I mean, I think if you look back at the construction of the, say, the American social contract, you can see how racism played a role pretty much every step of the way, and it played a role basically destroying empathy uh, and undermining solidarity, and uh, because it established borders of race and ethnicity across which, you know, empathy would would not cross. And so that led us to build institutions that did not serve all of us. That served only you know in the first instance of the building of the safety net, they served white Americans. And then when black Americans were invited into say, the bounty of citizenship, then the policies turn against the safety net altogether.
0: And the argument that you really fashion in the book is that the safety net does not exist. A uh, social welfare state that might have existed does not exist, essentially because of the poison of racism.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, the book, Pretty much starts with the New Deal programs put in place by the Roosevelt administration. That's the beginning of a building of which could have been a social democratic kind of like apparatus of uh, to to uh, guarantee the welfare of Americans. You had you know Social Security. You had uh, um, um, a variety of programs that were set up uh, to to kind of like put a floor under the well-being of Americans. Problem is that once civil rights legislation is passed people of color are invited into that safety net, then we decided we didn't want it, or say the American political system decided it didn't want it. So, but, but Roosevelt from the beginning, because he needed the support of Southern uh, white Democrats for passing his, 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 uh, a vast set of programs, he pretty much ensured that they were limited to whites because he knew that making them inclusive would probably have doomed them politically.
0: So when you speak about the lack of empathy, you're talking about, in a sense, uh, hostility and antagonism and discrimination really overriding empathy.
1: That's right. I mean, it's a it's it's a complicated, I think, uh, amalgamation of of thoughts, emotions, and biases. But I, you know, racism, uh, but also fear, contempt, um, hostility, bigotry. There's a it's a kind of like a whole package. Uh, that you know some social uh, scientists kind of euphemistically call racial divisions, um, but th- th- these sorts of things make it have have made it um, impossible for the United States. Or well, I, making it impossible makes it sound like uh, uh, kind of like a, n- force of, a force of nature. But the United States has not built the kind of programs that would help people across these borders because these borders just because these borders make it politically impossible.
0: Oh, you mentioned the New Deal. Uh, the New Deal was circumscribed, uh, essentially. You argue because of race, and there were solid and deep. Uh, you did a pretty solid and deep dive into research to pretty much back oh, this up.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just look at the at the uh, 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 the programs passed in, in the New Deal. Um, you know, we have the Federal Housing Administration, kind of like celebrated for expanding home ownership, offering federal guarantees to ensure mortgage loans for, for Americans of limited means, uh, but you know, the FHA also contributed to the redlining of America by refusing to back loans in predominantly black neighborhoods or in mixed neighborhoods or just for black people, period. Uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, which offered uh, unskilled young men jobs on government land, had camps segregated by race. Uh, the labor codes and the National Recovery Administration allowed businesses to offer whites a first crack at jobs, and authorize lower pay scales for blacks. And, and like the big, the, the sort of like the big program, Social Security, um, um, at first excluded both domestic and farm jobs. And domestic and farm jobs happen to employ two thirds of black workers. So the, it's like every single program that you see is being circumscribed to, and, and, and limited to white Americans
0: talking if you've just joined us with new york times economics reporter eduardo porter he's the author of american poison how racial hostility destroyed our promise these efforts to essentially exclude black and brown people that have hurt whites instead of having intersectionality for example with working class white working class come to kind of a focus in your book with harlan county kentucky among other places Uh, you also talk about housing in chicago but let's talk for a moment about Kentucky and the midterms of 2016, you had four and 10 people living under the poverty line, You had over 95% of the population white. Mining had declined, uh, more cancer cases yeah. there than anywhere, and yet racial hostility completely served to block uh, social welfare.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I went to Harlan because what, what drew me to Harlan was it is one of maybe a dozen counties in the United States uh, where uh, federal assistance makes up more than half of the income of the residents of the county on average. So, this is, you know, from, from Medicare and Social Security and food stamps and so forth, over half of the income comes from the feds. And in this county, despite this fact, despite the fact that there is so much need there, for a robust uh, government welfare apparatus. It, there's an extreme hostility to this very government. I was at a, at a, at a town hall uh, held by the then governor, Matt Bevin, who was this you know, tea party stalwart, um, who, who is no longer governor. He, he, he lost in the last election, but he was at the time. And I remember these rounds of applause and this kind of like standing ovation when he started railing against people who abused the safety net and how we needed to attach working requirements to it to prevent this kind of abuse. And so it seemed to me, while well, I'm looking around at a bunch of people that are actually, you know, voting against their own self interest. And when I then I went to talk to some of these people about, you know, what's kind of what to, to try to flesh to, to, to figure out what motivates this um, this 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 hostile. Hostility towards the safety net there was always this sense of well there are other people that are not that are different from us that will abuse it, you know and so there's virtually no immigrants in, in, in Harlan I, I don't you know probably most residents have never seen um, a, a Latino immigrant in Harlan and yet you know, when I asked an open-ended question, well, why do you think uh, um, um, we need to make it more difficult for people to access uh, uh, the, the social safety net? They'd say, well, it's a, we can't really afford to give it to, to immigrants because it would be too expensive. And, you know, the, the fact that there was already this sense that there are these others out there that are, you know, kind of like encroaching on our... Uh, um, on, on our uh, well-being and and, and on our, you know, taxes and so forth seem to me very, very, uh, very striking and and emblematic of a kind of broader sense uh, in in the country.
0: Well, in fact, uh, when you write about uh, the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, you talk about the attitudes of animus where race is concerned, uh, essentially created an antagonism that began to essentially oppose Obamacare just on the basis of race.
1: Oh, to be sure I mean there's been research that finds that the association the racial association of, 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 of this health insurance with a black president actually you know increased uh, opposition to to that to the health care law um, So there's like this cle- it's a very, very clear motivation um, that is attached to race. And you can see um, you know Obamacare, I would say is the first attempt to really expand the safety net since Lyndon Johnson, since the war against poverty in the civil rights era. Um, And it has been beaten back uh, relentlessly in in, in, in uh, uh, many Republican states, in states, for instance, like Kentucky, uh, which have been tried to reduce benefits, uh, attach more, uh, to put more hurdles in the way of drawing benefits. Um, and um, it just tells you how difficult it is. I mean, Obamacare is, 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 is example a, a, number one of how difficult it is to build a safety net at all in this country.
0: Well, and also, I, I think you mentioned a Tea Party before. To really understand this poisonous uh, uh, metaphor that you use, which is not a metaphor, it's literal in so many ways, uh, you take us to some Tea Party rallies where they were talking about uh, President Obama as the primate-in-chief, and there were pictures of uh, President Obama and the First Lady, Michelle Obama, that were a simian, that were made them into apes. I mean, th- this is a kind of deep and fostered toxicity is the only word yeah. for it, that really... Has affected the veins and arteries of this nation for too long now. Um, what about the what about our better angels? What about the civil rights movement? What about you know Martin Luther King and and Malcolm X and uh, Cesar Chavez in this whole picture?
1: Well, yeah, I mean that that if if, if you want to be optimistic about the future, those are the people to think about, and that's the moment in history that you want to think about, right? We did pass the Civil Rights Act and the the Voting Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act, and so there have been you know. There was uh, a Brown, the, the Supreme Court desegrega- uh, 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 um, uh, desegregated schools in, in Brown versus Board of Education subsequent, uh, uh, um, and subsequent moments. And uh, yet, and so I do believe those better angels are there somewhere. And if you, know, if you look at some of the protests that have happened since the, the killing of, of, of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, you also see that a lot of the people on the streets are of a bunch of different groups. It's not just, you know, uh, African Americans out there protect, protesting the, the the murderous violence against their communities. But there's a lot of, of uh, out here in Brooklyn, there's a lot of white folks. Um, I've seen, you know, Asian Americans out there. I've seen Latinos out there. And so, you know there's this sense that well you know maybe we can sort of there we can sort of build a sense of of the of empathy we can kind of build an inclusive society that accepts us all um as americans as mainstream americans and then manages to rebuild our institutions to serve that well,
0: but there's any time that we need unity it's now during this pandemic uh,
1: you'd think right
0: you'd think right but you you say the chipping away at the gains of civil rights uh Movement uh, have been, and you're talking about recently, right up to the present, relentless, and attitudes uh, toward race have uh, essentially been involved more in racial sorting uh, that has accelerated and it's accelerated well, sharply over the past decade. And you make the case that, again, it's this racial poison that really allowed for the election of Donald J. Trump.
1: Oh yeah, I mean yeah. Let's let's think back again to you know the, this great moment, which is the civil rights moment. Um, right after the, you know, the civil rights legislation is passed is when we start uh, dismantling the social safety net and when we start building up a criminal justice system that was you know, pretty much directed to incarcerate people of color in enormous numbers. It became like the main tool of social management, uh, became prison. Uh, you know, f- from the 1960s pretty much all the way to the present, Forgive me, Eduardo,
0: of- you do a very good job with this, but I wonder, uh, were you familiar with Marilyn Robinson's work, aren't you? I don't
1: think I read Marilyn
0: Robinson's work. You know, but, she's but, done, but- d- done a lot about talking about how resources were diverted into incarceration, and that's really at the core of your economic argument uh, tied to racism.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, w- I, I, I did read... Uh, you you weren't referring to Michelle Alexander, right? I'm
0: sorry, Michelle Alexander is who I refer to. Yes, thank
1: you. Yeah, so I do know Michelle Alexander. Uh, She Uh called the criminal justice system the new Jim Crow. And uh, so, yes, basically that is, there's from like the 1970s to pretty much the present, there's been an enormous movement of resources towards the criminal justice system. And that's become... Uh, a prime tool of social management, uh, rather than I mean, it's kind of like what do you do with the dysfunction that you see on the streets? You put it in prison, and by dysfunction I mean everything that makes the uh, life uncomfortable for you know what we now know what what we would call mainstream Americans, and in many cases this is you know this has been putting people of color in prison. That has been. The, I sort of like a main vector of policy in the United States for 30 years. And at the same time as that, as that has grown, you've seen, you know, attacks on the safety net. You've seen memes like the welfare queen pop up in the Reagan years to justify attaching work requirements to the safety net and reducing plans. You see this even in the administration of Bill Clinton, who was a Democrat who... Uh, um, Tony Morrison called him the, America's first black president. And he nonetheless uh, um, passed a welfare reform that ended up uh, hurting really a lot of the most marginal people by eliminating the federal entitlement to assistance from the federal government for the poor. And he also passed a really harsh, you know, ratcheting up of, of uh, criminal justice legislation that also had the same purpose of really of doing a lot of damage to marginal communities and to communities of color.
0: Again, our guest is Eduardo Porter. His book is American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. And what you get into, which uh, I found particularly enlightening, and so much in your book is very enlightening, but has not written a great deal about is uh, the bias and the bigotry that existed in labor unions. Uh, I mean, you take us through from uh, the railroads uh, back at the turn- early part of uh, the last century, before the, the 19th century, I should say, uh, right up through the Chinese Exclusion Act and into uh, even electronic electrical workers unions in Washington, D.C., uh, yeah. as recently as 1960. I think a lot of people think that, that the union movement and that the labor movement was, uh, shall we say, more free of this kind of bigotry, but not the case, as you argue. I wonder, though, about the armed forces because, again, you argue, you take us back and uh, talk about uh, no blacks in the Marines up until 1940. Uh, the Tank Corps, mm-hmm. the Signal Corps, Air Corps, and so forth. Blacks being used essentially to dig ditches and do cooking and that sort of thing. And and mm-hmm. uh, and yet mm-hmm. people argue nowadays that the military, that the armed forces, and they say the same about labor unions, are more integrated than ever imagined and better in terms of racial. Uh, equity than anybody had ever imagined.
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, in the armed forces, there must be something that brings people together when you're out there, you know, dying next to each other. Uh, My guess is that that would create a lot of social glue. You really have to trust the person that's next to you with your life, literally. Um, You know, I think the story of the labor movement is particularly sad. In that, I think that this the, the hostility that, that you've just uh, recounted the uh, uh, up until the 1960s actually worked to weaken organized labor and made it a lesser force than it could have been. There's this great speech in which Martin Luther King invites uh, um, 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 uh, organized labor, the AFL, uh, uh, um, uh, to to kind of like invite in and embrace uh um uh, black brothers and sisters into into the labor movement and that that would help prevent the the move of louisiana into a right to work state um and and arguing that the that kind of like this these racial divisions within the labor movement had helped had allowed uh um for unions to be to weaken and and had in fact promoted many states to become become right to work and um, his invitation was pretty much ignored. Um, um, I think that, and Louisiana became a right-to-work state. And whereas today, I, I mean, I think you're probably right that, as a whole, labor is uh, is more inclusive than perhaps other um, other institutions. I mean, for instance, you have um, the union of, of of public sector workers where people of color are very well represented in this union. Um, You have unions like uh, um, um, the SEIU and Unite Here, which represent, you know, like hotel workers and whatnot. There's a lot, a lot of Latinos in these unions. Um, They represent workers in these service industries where there's a lot of Latinos. So I do think that right now some of these unions are really Uh, Do really represent the interests of communities of color, but I'm not sure I wouldn't take the next step and say that, you know, labor as a whole has, you know, become a force for inclusion. Um, It's not clear to me that that's in fact true. And the other thing that I would say is also right now labor has become such a weak institution in terms I, I think it's like only 7% of workers in the private sector belong to unions. Um, and so I, I find it difficult to consider it like a, a meaningful force for change. Unless, I mean, unless we can find other ways, I mean, let me take a step back, I think that unions that have embraced um, um, new, you know, the new America, are actually doing better than others. So I think, again, of the SEIU and Unite here that are where there's lots of immigrants uh, um, in in the union, uh, the, these unions embraced immigrants because they saw the future of the labor force, and they said, "Well, these are our future workers." So, you know, from the movement like Justice for Janitors in the 1990s, where there was an attempt to, you know, fight for the rights of undocumented janitors uh, on, on the West Coast, I, mean, I think these were very very smart strategic moves. Other, they were also, you know. I think the right thing to do, but they were, I think, smart strategically because I think if the labor union is to become a stronger and and, and a a better representative uh, of the interests of working women and men, uh, it will have to embrace the new America. Um, But I would again step and say it's not clear to me that this is in fact true across um, across organized labor. And I remember, for instance, how reluctant the AFL CIO was um, about immigration reform uh, um, uh, that would have, you know, um, um, had a component of uh, uh, allowing many uh, undocumented workers to, to uh, acquire legal status in the United States. And I think that, that labor saw. Um, uh, immigrants as a potential competition, and and I think to some extent many in the organized labor still think that way, and so are therefore very reluctant to kind of like invite this community uh, in into their into their house.
0: Again, we're talking with Eduardo Porter, author of American Poison: How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. And if you'd like to weigh in here, we'd like to hear from you. Has racial polarization actually? caused, as uh, Eduardo Porter argues, the collapse of the support for the safety net and support for public goods and uh, actually uh, created, uh, well, the apparatus of government uh, going the wrong way from where it could have helped more people uh, or fulfilled the promise of America. If you have some thoughts on this or if you have something you'd like to add to the conversation, we do want to hear from you. You can give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That number is toll free from wherever or however you're listening to Forum Again, the number to call 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Please feel free to join the program and join the conversation. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with New York Times economics reporter Eduardo Porter, author of American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. And how do you think race plays into government policies? And what kind of safety net do you think the government should provide and for whom? And how have you been personally affected by systemic racism? You can join us now by phone, toll free at 866-733-6786 Number again for your calls, 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And just a personal note for a moment uh, with you, Eduardo, because you write about your Mexican heritage and living a number of years in Mexico and uh, actually speaking Spanish in your home. Uh, Your mother was Mexican, I know, and you wanted your kids to learn Spanish and be fluent in it. And Uh, You write about a moment with your son, Mateo, where there was a kind of embarrassment and shame that he felt speaking Spanish. And that was very striking and poignant to me because uh, it does point out something about the fear that even a child can have about expressing, uh, because of the xenophobia, expressing himself or herself in another language.
1: Yeah, that was crazy. And um, I don't think it was shame. I think it was fear, precisely. Fear. Um, you know, and this was the day after the 2016 election, we were, uh, riding the subway and, uh, here in New York. And, and we always, I, we always speak in Spanish. Um, I definitely want him to, to be fluent in Spanish as am I, to be able to speak with our family back in Mexico. And he just like, kind of like, kind of a little you know, whispered into my ear, sort of spoke softly, hey, dad, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea to speak in Spanish in public. And it's, it's, it's hardly crazy, right? I mean, you know, he had been just listened through an entire presidential campaign in which the, the winning candidate actually, you know, campaigned by, by calling Mexicans rapist thugs that should be kept out with this huge wall. Um and uh, you know so, so this sort of you seemed to me a very, very rational reaction. You know, and there's this 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 playground right around his school um that I think this was just a few days later um, and this school in in, in in a very liberal part of Brooklyn and you know, well some some swastikas were painted on the on the on the playground equipment and the, with the phrase you know, go Trump under it. So suddenly you could see these emotions percolating up through American society, emotions that we didn't really know were quite so near the surface. So I think, you know, fear in communities of color seems to me a very rational
0: response. Indeed. And uh, I'm just wondering, when you write about Mateo or your daughter Uma, we're going to go to our callers and get our listeners involved in this conversation. But I need to ask you, uh, where does hope lie for you in all of this?
1: Sorry, could you where does that? hope
0: lie for all of you, for your children and your grandchildren? Gosh.
1: I mean, I'm a kind of a pessimistic person by nature. I guess that's why I became a journalist. Uh, <laughs> and I, moreover, I write about economics known as the dismal science. So, you know, I have this dismal view of the world. But if you were to press me, okay, where could I see signs of hope? Where, where, where would I place my hopes? I would place them in the fact that the united states is changing it kind of inevitably demography is unstoppably changing this country into a much more diverse place um by the 2040s um white non-hispanics will no longer be the majority of the population they no longer are amongst the younger cohorts um and so my sense is that as 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 we become a much more mixed, you know, black, Latino, Asian American, uh, a cauldron, we will inevitably have to build uh, a politics and a social contract that really truly includes us all. Now, um, and and you know, it, it's not that pie in the sky I mean you look at the young I mean again the people on the streets which are mostly young that protesting you know for for this kind of like systemic racial uh, racism um, it you, you can see that you, you could see the, the the makings of a a multi-ethnic multi kind of coalition that could perhaps move the country into towards a more inclusive direction
0: could that include so, the and, white working class in that intersectionality
1: well it has to I mean, you know, it has to include the white working class. I mean, you know, it has to include, it has to include the 60-plus million people who voted for Donald Trump for president because, you know, it ha- it's impossible to build a country that excludes, you know, so many of its people. It's pointless. Um, and, and so, yes, I, the, the, the real challenge is you have to create a nation that is for all of us. And it's something that we've never done. And that's where I turn back to my pessimism. I don't think we've ever achieved that.
0: Well, your pessimism could be, we hope, uh, tempered by changes that will be taking place. Uh, We are in a state of flux right now, as you said, and we're also in a state where we have a lot of people who wanna talk, Uh, let me have them join us. Beginning with you, Rob, you're on the air, good morning.
2: Hey, good morning, thanks for taking my call. yeah, my question is really for the guest in in regards to um, the role that education might play in all this. I just I I can't help but think about my own public school experience, and I think that um, you know so many people are taught that you know we solve so many problems, so many of these problems, you know, via the civil rights movement, and and that has sort of worked to almost vilify the culture of minority communities, in that. You know, people think that all these problems have been solved. We figured it out with the civil rights movement, and now here we are. Um, and this is, you know, things are clearly we are, we are still experiencing so many problems. But there's, uh, you know, a, a sort of, uh, you know, people don't actually believe that those problems exist. You know, specifically, I yeah. think in in in. Uh, maybe white working communities like where I went to school. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious if the, if the guest has any thoughts about that.
0: Some thoughts, Eduardo?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really interesting observation, and I think you're totally right that there's this sense, especially, well, perhaps only in in, in white communities that, um, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that all whites share this view, but it is a view that it is that is held in, 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 in white communities, and perhaps more in in, in, in white communities with le- with less ed- amongst, among uh, whites with less education that the that, that 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 this is not a problem. And in fact, if you look at some polling, uh, th- there is evidence that a lot of you know less educated uh, um, white and mostly older whites. Can begun, have begun to think that, in fact, that they are discriminated against, that a lot of the policies that emanated from the Civil Rights Act discriminate against them, things like affirmative action and so forth. And they see you know, people of color as, as kind of like uh, undeserving recipients of, of the helping hand of the government, whereas it's their taxes, the taxes of white workers that are paying for this. And this is a feeling that has been around, I mean, for a very long time, notably since the Nixon administration exploited this feeling uh, politically very, very well. Actually, as you um, point
0: out in your book, Eduardo, uh, it was there were kind of smokescreens during Romney's campaign, but there were direct appeals. The dog whistles became much louder during the Trump campaign to white voters along the lines that you've just described.
1: Yes, exactly. And and so I, so just to 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 round this out, I think the role of education is enormous, and in fact, I I, I would be remiss not to mention that i think the the places where we can actually try to like promote the change this change i think are in the educational system and in our residential arrangement, where we live and where we study. Because I think that to build this kind of like more integrated nation, we have to learn to live together and we have to kind of like educate ourselves together. And so I do think that a lot of the the, the places where we could have, uh, we could put in place some kind of like interesting inclusive policies go through, uh, um, through, through residential policy and housing and through the education. Unfortunately, in education, we did try. There was, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, then a bunch of other Supreme Court decisions since then that actually imposed kind of desegregation on many segregated schools, but then we stopped. In the 1980s, sort of like there was a sense of oh, fait accompli, which was, you know, of course a lie. And there was a resegregation of education. And If you look around right now, there's a really big trend going on of affluent white suburban uh, uh, neighborhoods separating themselves from urban school districts in order to keep, you know, um, there's more wealthy, homogeneously white enclaves uh, and keep them separated from the kind of like bigger, uh, um, uh, bigger, uh, poorer um, um, school districts where there's where there's a lot of people of color.
0: And let me bring another caller on, and that's Tarya. Tarya, welcome. You're on the air with us. Good morning.
1: Uh, I have a
2: couple of questions. One is kind of just incidental. I always heard that Truman integrated the armed forces. Was there anything to this?
1: You know, the the armed forces were absolutely segregated, and Truman did integrate the armed forces, but at least – there was a de jure integration of the armed forces. Whether it happened de facto is really kind of like much more question. And even, you know, and if you look at, uh, um, at the composition of the armed forces, even up to the present, up to the, you see there's a, a, a predominance of uh, a people of color amongst, amongst the, the, the rank and file, and, and, and uh, it's, it's much, much wider as you move up the ranks.
0: I'm going to read a comment from a listener, and I thank Tarja for the call. A listener named Virgil, who writes, regrettably, this is not a novel or at least new concept. President Lyndon Johnson is reported to have said, if you uh, can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. And uh, you got a quote from Lyndon Johnson right in the beginning yeah. of your book, uh, uh, <laughs> there has yeah. to be a better deal. Another comment from a listener named Brian, who says it's been a central tenet of right-wing propaganda for decades, if not generations, to demonize people of color, immigrants, government, and more recently environmentalists, all designed and intended to bring the white working class and small business owners into the Republican tent. And here, on the other hand, is Jaime, and wonder what your response is, uh, Eduardo. He writes, this country elected the black son of an African, not even an African-American, twice we are not the same country as when the New Deal was created and Jim Crow ruled the South, endlessly repeating the phrase systemic racism does not make it true or real.
1: I I think, yes, it's true that this is not the same country as uh, uh, the Jim Crow South, but that doesn't mean that systemic racism isn't present. I think that the fact that, you know, Donald Trump could climb to the presidency on an overtly racist uh, campaign theme suggests that racism is very pre- it's very prevalent and is a very powerful political force um- it is true that we have made progress and it is true that uh, um, we voted for uh, a, a black president twice. Um, but I don't think that, you know, I think that's again, this temptation to believe that the problem is solved when there are so many, so many instances of, of racial disparity and inequity and of policies that are kind of like meant to, to increase these inequities, um, it, it's very hard to, to argue that, 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 that we've gotten over this. There's still residential segregation is really rampant. Educational segregation is really rampant. If you look at the population of our prison system, it is g- way predominantly people of color that are behind bars. So th- the notion that because we elected Barack Obama twice, you know, we've gotten over uh, our racial hostility seems to me a very, very long shot.
0: That yeah, was supposed to be a post racist society, remember when Obama was first elected? Yeah, and, and,
1: yeah. and, and, and but I mean the kinda of like the political polarization and the kind of like hold no prisoners politics that have taken over Washington pretty much since President Obama was elected suggests to me that we were very not post racist racial
0: society. And here's Cynthia. Cynthia, welcome. You're on forum.
2: Hi. Um I'm calling because I grew up in the Bay Area and it's been On the one hand, really exciting to see um, the nation having a more sophisticated conversation about race relations, but um, obviously all of the people who are sort of older veterans at this are concerned about the backlash coming now that we're Mm -hmm. having um, open discussions. So one Mm -hmm. of my primary questions is going forward, why are we not talking about ethnic studies? This is Mm -hmm. like basic reading for people from the Bay Area who have benefited, benefited from a long history of ethnic studies. And it's something that's not prevalent anywhere else in the country.
0: Well, we did have a discussion on forum about ethnic studies when a proposal was put forward uh, and. uh,
1: By the Cal State School. Yeah, yeah, that's,
0: that's in our archives. But you want to comment on that, Eduardo?
1: Yeah, look, I think that any effort to kind of like reduce othering, to get, you know, to kind of like eliminate othering, because, I mean, racial hostility, racial divisions, racial barriers are. at at the origin, at their essence, kind of like tribal reactions to define an us versus a them. And we can use race, we can use language, we can use religion. These are all lines along which throughout history, not only in this country, but in many other countries as well, uh, um, um, racial divisions have been formed. It's an us versus them thing. So learning about all the communities that make part of this country is obviously a part of a strategy to like to to kind of like eliminate these barriers uh um and 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 kind of like eliminate this 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 segregation of the country into boxes of uh, of otherness one of the things Um, that
0: that i was struck by uh in your book uh, because cynthia mentioned growing up here in the bay area here in california we had prop 13 which changed essentially the whole nature of revenue and revenue flow and in your book you write about prop 13 As tied to not wanting to spend money on Mexicans because of the highest poverty rate. Talk about that. Yeah.
1: Well, it's also, you know, it's kind of like a moment in where there's a very interesting old economic study by an MIT economist named James Paterba. And in his study, he was looking at support for public education. And he found that uh, um, in in communities that had a lot of elderly people and, and also young families the elderly became very very reluctant the elderly were very reluctant to spend on education funds and presumably because you know the kids were not theirs but, but what, what what interested me about this particular study is when the ethnicity of the of of the young families was not white the elderly white became extremely reluctant to fund the education of the young non-white family, of, you know, of the kids of the non, non, uh, non-white young families. And I think that essentially California just proved that. Uh, um, Prop 13 was, you know, kind of like one instance of that. Uh, And and it it happened in a moment of very uh, important demographic change in California, where the the younger generations were more Latino, the older population was whiter, And so it was basically a movement against funding the education for these other guys that weren't us. Um, There's another really interesting research, and these are two two, um, um, economists at the University of California, um, um, Robert Furley and Julian Betts. They have, their study found that when when uh, l- the kids of, of Latino immigrants entered public schools, the kids of white immigrant of, of white non-immigrants left public schools and went into private schools, um, and and they they, they detected this. Uh, um, um, it, this was a study done in the uh, late 1990s, um, and and so you you can see this uh um this this dissatisfaction with funding the education of this other you know of this other community which you know in in some of the some of the pete wilson campaign literature was really over the top like we're being invaded uh mexico is going to re-annex california Um, there was stuff that was really over the top there
0: again we're talking with new york times economics reporter eduardo porter who is the author of american poison how Racial hostility destroyed our promise, and uh, I want to get to some comments that are coming in, Eduardo. But first, I wanted to ask you about something that you write about, uh, which is the melting pot. You take us back, in fact, to Israel Zangwill, uh, which uh, some history I was unfamiliar with, a, a play called The Melting Pot, which Teddy Roosevelt was raving about. And Americans have long raved about the idea or the myth of a melting pot. I think it was Eldridge Cleaver who said it was a myth, or even before that, Gunnar Myrtle *An American yeah. Dilemma. Uh, this idea, yeah, yeah. though, has hung on. It's It's been tenacious uh, that we are somehow a melting pot.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think that it has to do with the fact that the United States is uniquely diverse country because it is, you know, compared to, uh, um, you know, the, the, the European social democracies that are much more or have historically been much more racially homogeneous. The U.S. was formed with people from all over the place. And I don't think there's anywhere like that um, outside of the United States. Um, which and gives so credence the, I, to the
0: melting pot myth. Uh, sorry? I say, which gives credence to the melting pot myth.
1: Well, but the melting pot is a, is a, is a second step, is accepting everybody's into American myths, right? Into, in, is accepting the idea that all these diverse peoples, are in fact mainstream Americans, and that, and and what I argue in Poison is that we've had a lot of trouble with that second step. Yeah. So we, you know, and 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 in fact, sort of like the the uh, uh, in the Northeast at the turn of the of the 20th century, a lot of the racial divisions were against you know Jews and Central Europeans and Southern Europeans, um, but and those and you know Italians and so forth, and those were kind of like whitened. Over time, accepted into whiteness over the over the 20th century, I think because of two things. Basically, because a) they, 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 the 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 social economic gap closed. I mean, so many of these immigrants kind of like uh, went to uh, um um started achieving higher higher incomes, and two, the the great migration of African Americans from the South into the Northeast and the Midwest kind of like helped whiten. These other guys that would have that were the kind of like the 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 the, uh, the marginalized uh, groups that were there before that were invited in because there was this other even more alien group uh, against which hostility was much stronger. So kind of like the, the great migration helped in a way whiten, uh, uh, um, you know, the Italians and the Portuguese and the Jews of the Northeast, and so and, and so they melted into the pot but it was still a very exclusive pot.
0: And let me read some comments that are coming in. Uh, Roger writes, uh, well, actually, this is a question from Roger who says, I was not aware of the discriminatory effect of some of these programs. How many of the supporters do you think had discriminatory intent and how many were unaware of it?
1: Um, I mean, that's a... Um, it's a good question. Um, and just, just to the point of of the discriminatory policies, one of the central arguments that I make in Poison is that some of these policies are not, they, they, they clearly hurt communities of color, but they also hurt poor marginalized white communities because these communities also rely on the safety net. Uh, and because the safety net is so meager, so threadbare, they are also left in the lurch. So, you know, a lot of these communities that are, you know, uh, ravaged by opioids, a lot, um, these, which are, you know, predominantly white and more rural, um, would would be helped massively with a more robust safety net. And so it, it the one important point in the book is that this has hurt many American communities, even though it, it, it stems from uh, um, kind of hostility against people of color. And I do think that, you know, um, um, maybe... Individual voters don't have the sophistication to understand that, you know, attaching a work requirement to to the Affordable Care Act is going to be of necessity discriminatory. But I do still think that there is some understanding when you think, oh, well, yeah, it's those, you know, that those lazy urban blacks who are taking advantage of the safety net for which I that I fund through my taxes. Um, there is a discriminatory feeling. Uh, I- embedded in that thought. And that thought has, I think, been a very, very powerful driver of policy in the United States over the last half century.
0: Well, you also bring to the fore a lot of uh, well, really number crunching and, and research. For example, uh, you argue that minorities, specifically minorities, still get a raw deal in Social Security. Uh, they get more meager payments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have, sh- they, basically because they have a shorter life expectancy. And uh, so they're going to draw. So, for instance, they're going to draw Social Security for less. So, if, in fact, if you look at it carefully over the lifetime, it turns out that uh, it's redistributing from minorities, uh, from lower income minorities to more affluent whites, which is a weird way to redistribute.
0: Let me read an email from Bernie who says non-union immigrant labor was specifically used to bust unions, particularly in the meatpacking industry and free trade agreements like NAFTA. This was supported by Democrats and Republicans alike and has devastated our manufacturing sector. If your guest is serious about attacking racism, he should call on high-minded white-collar liberals to once again buy Union and buy American. Uh,
1: I, I mean, I'm not sure how we reach that specific uh, 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 conclusion, but the, the thought I think is valid. The, um, um, the It is true that from... For many many years, people of color were not particularly uh, supportive of unions because unions were pretty much not supportive of workers of color, and you know, in fact, uh, um, union busting offered uh, people of color, African Americans, the first opportunity into many jobs which were actually controlled by unions and which union, union use their gatekeeping capacity to keep people of color out. But I, I'm not celebrating this, but the, it, it's just another instance about how the racial hostility got in the way of building a bigger, more robust uh, um, um, labor movement
0: well another one of our listeners curtis puts this in a political context and i wonder what your response is to his remark it's, uh, he writes uh, it's clear that the strategy of political division by race is ultimately a losing one is the republican party headed toward obsolescence with trump i don't know if you got the tea leaves well, there, Eduardo, well but, listen uh,
1: that's that's a that's a very you know important question and i play with it a little bit in poison I I remember back in the 2000s, there was this political scientist, Rita Sheda, who wrote that, you know, that demographic change pretty much ensured a a democratic future because Republicans, the Republican, the white Republican base was just going to shrink and they were never going to be able to to capture this new American voter, which was people of color. Uh, And that was 20 years ago, though. (laughs) And just four years ago, we had racial division being used very, very effectively uh, by Donald Trump to become president. So, you know, I I, I would, if you, I, I do sort of think that way into the future, say, um, um, if, if, if the Republican Party continues to fail to reach out to communities of color, um, it will, you know, drive itself into, into, obsoles- into obsolescence, into irrelevance. Um, however, between now and then, you know, sort of, sort of, this coming November and four years from now and so forth, it's not clear to me that, ra- that the politics of racial division um, have lost their power. They seem, in fact, very powerful. I mean, let's see what happens in November. Well, we still but, have to
0: deal know, certainly with voter suppression. We still have to deal with all of the vagaries. Of... Uh, yes, but indeed. Let me be, we've got oh, seconds left here. What would be the first step to dismantling what you see as systemic racism? First major oh, step. Oh,
1: I think, uh, my steps are all small. I think they're all about they are from the bottom up. I think we have to start at the community level. I I have a, I hold a lot of hope in the idea of building uh, uh, um, uh, um, um, housing policies, integrated housing policies. We have had some successes in that, in you know integrating housing, making people you know or people live together. They beca- they relate as individuals rather than as members of groups. And, you, and that's a way that you can, I think, that you can build the kind of basic emotions that would allow you to build a, a, a institutions to support everybody. So I do think that residential policies are basic.
0: Well, let's move beyond these tribal walls, or these racial walls somehow. Uh, you've written a book that I think really points out so much. And I thank you for spending this time with us. And again, congratulations on the book. It's an important one. Uh, this is New York Times economics reporter Eduardo Porter and his book again is called American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. Good to have you with us, Eduardo. Thank you again.
1: Thanks a lot, man. Kate. Okay, bye.
0: For all of us here at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny.